Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we're looking at the future of higher education and asking whether the pandemic represents a turning point in attitudes to online learning. We'll be asking what worked, what didn't, and what were the lessons learned when leading institutions such as the University of Oxford moved their teaching online. We are an institution whose entire educational model is based on highly personalised one-on-one tutorials, highly personalised education. So this was a radical departure for us. How is the sharp drop in international travel affecting the business models of some universities? Universities have really come to rely on international students. The total number worldwide has has more than doubled over the past two decades. And what will the long-term impact of all of this be on the delivery of higher education? People are not going to go back to a world where the main way of teaching is expecting people to come and sit in an auditorium. That's just not going to come back. The past year has been a difficult one for students. Many were barred from campus and required to attend lectures remotely. Others could not enter the country where they intended to study. Some new students who did manage to make it to their chosen universities were greeted by freshers' fairs conducted over Zoom and strict social distancing rules. All of this looks set to continue well into 2021. For universities, the pandemic has brought to an end what now looks like a golden age. Over the past few decades, universities have been thriving, supported by rising prosperity, growing demand from students and strong backing from politicians who saw universities as engines of economic growth. In recent years, digital platforms offering MOOCs, massive open online courses that were available to students anywhere in the world, were hailed as a disruptive force that would shake up higher education. But MOOCs failed to dent enthusiasm for traditional in-person degree courses. Now, however, the pandemic has forced universities to change the way they operate, compelling them to adopt remote learning technologies, and in some cases, calling their business models into question. If you look back to the start of the pandemic, there were two big worries at universities across the world. Hamish Birrell is The Economist's public policy correspondent. He wrote about the changing prospects for universities in our annual publication, The World in 2021. One was that domestic students wouldn't turn up. The other was that international students would be kept out because borders were closed. These both have happened, but to varying degrees in different countries. And the degree to which they've happened mainly depends on kind of an interaction between COVID rules and the higher education funding system. And so the kind of exact outcome will differ from country to country. But the big takeaway is a a big shift towards online learning in the past few months. To what extent do you think that will stick after the pandemic has subsided? It's a hard one to judge, but there's a few things we can look at. So on on the one hand, students aren't overjoyed by the the new way of doing things. In Britain here, you've kind of seen an increasing number of protests about them having to pay full fees despite getting a more limited experience. At the start, students were kind of willing to make accommodations with the situation and to give universities a bit of slack. They're less willing to now we've been in this situation for so long. But on the other hand, universities have started to put a lot of effort into online teaching. So this is partly the the kind of provision of education. They're kind of thinking more about how you make lectures interesting and how you do tutorials and group work online. But it's also about the kind of wider support for pupils who are learning at home. 
And some lecturers who are previously kind of pretty resistant to the idea of online teaching are now less so. And because of all this experimentation, I think in the future, for students who do want online provision, and there's a kind of relatively big group of them out there, they will have more choice because more universities will have worked out how to do this and will now want to offer some kind of more online education. And in the long run, I think that will start to wear down the stigma about online learning. And if you're right, and online learning, distance learning is seen as more of a a viable option by at least some students, is that going to open a door for universities to offer a larger proportion of their degrees online? It's a funny one, because if you speak to people in higher education, lots of them are quite weary of the kind of supposed digital revolution which is uh, heading our way. And if you go back kind of five or six years, there's a lot of talk about the MOOC revolution. And it didn't really, it didn't really kind of entirely disrupt the industry as, as many expected. So unlike newspapers or television, universities kind of remain firmly undisrupted. But then if you look in, say, America, one in three postgraduate students now study online. And that's up from, from one in five just a few years back. And so I really think that now you've had all this experimentation and universities have worked out how to teach online. And more will now have this kind of offer ready, ready to go out to more students. I think that market will only grow and it will, I think it will expand because at the moment it's, most online degrees are pretty strongly business focused. And I think as the kind of stigma wears down and it perhaps becomes more palatable to younger students as well as older ones, I think that might start to change too. One of the biggest names in online learning is Coursera, a MOOC provider founded in 2012 by two academics at Stanford University. We were always on the side of this was going to be a symbiotic relationship. Daphne Kohler was one of the co-founders of Coursera. She's since co-founded another online learning startup called Engagely. I don't think that uh, people are looking at MOOCs as a substitute, certainly not for a traditional undergraduate education, and we never anticipated that to be the case. And even if you think about graduate education, there is this aspect of connecting with an institution, getting a real meaningful interaction with your fellow students and with an instructor that you just don't get in a MOOC setting. And so our perspective was always that universities were, first of all, going to be the main source of our content because they have some of the best scholars and the best teachers. And also that to the extent that you wanted to use MOOCs as a way of expanding your audience base in order to get more students into the university ecosystem, it was always going to be something that you then supplemented with some interaction with an instructor at the university to create that level of engagement that fosters the kind of learning outcomes and completion rates that, frankly, we weren't able to get in a MOOC alone. So what have we seen during the pandemic? Have universities that have expanded their online education programs, have they partnered with MOOCs or have they just adopted MOOC-like processes and approaches? So I think there's been some level of partnering with MOOCs, and especially in the early days of the pandemic, I think there was almost a sense of desperation in since you're not able to teach people in the same way that you were before how do you get high quality content when your faculty are already stretched thin and not particularly able to teach effectively online and without having the appropriate training? So there was a lot of use of MOOC content even within existing college classes. I'm not sure how much that will um, continue following pandemic, we'll, we'll have to see. But what I think this has created is the real understanding that learning is not going to be the same again, because if we are in a world where you could 
now teach um, people in an online format. And that offers so many advantages to such a large set of, uh, of students who are at a disadvantage. How do you move to a, to a more online learning as a way in which you offer your traditional education? I think that's a mind shift that's never going to go back. People are not going to go back to a world where the main way of teaching is expecting people to come and sit in an auditorium with 300 people listening to someone drone on at the bottom of the auditorium. That's just not going to come back. So will the sudden widespread adoption of online learning mean that universities can scale up their operations and enrol far more students? Here's Hamish Birrell again. If the top universities, the top ranking universities want to get into this market, it's very obvious to see how they could quickly scale up and become huge because there's such demand for the certificates they offer, the teaching they offer. The one factor weighing against that though is a lot of them are very reluctant to do so because they recognise, and they wouldn't put it like this, but some of the value of their degrees comes from scarcity. And so if they did massively expand provision and did offer the same certificates for students studying online as, as those who turn up in person, the value of their degrees would decline. So I, I think that's the kind of hurdle that has to be overcome. So I, think, I think it's possible more will get into the market, but equally there will be quite strong resistance from, from a lot of them. For one top-ranking university, the University of Oxford, the rapid switch to online education made necessary by the pandemic represented a complete change in its approach to teaching. We adjusted at a pace that I have to say surprised even ourselves. Professor Louise Richardson is Vice-Chancellor at the University of Oxford. Because we moved online completely over the course of the Easter holidays. And we are an institution whose entire educational model is based on highly personalised one-on-one tutorials, highly personalised education. So this was a radical departure for us. And we did it at pace. And uh, we were, it worked remarkably well. We not only had to move all teaching online, but all examinations and assessment online too. So we survived that and we got through the term. We then spent the summer months figuring out how to do it really well, knowing that we might have to continue online or partially online in Michaelmas term, in the autumn term. In the autumn term, as it turned out, we had a very large cohort of students, indeed our largest ever. So we physically back on campus. So we taught them in a hybrid model, some face-to-face teaching, some online teaching. So Trinity term was entirely online. Michaelmas term was hybrid students here um, with a hybrid of uh, face-to-face and online teaching. And now in Hillary term, we have yet another model. Most of our students are not here, a small cohort are. Uh, We hope to have more back over time. So we are again, not doing face-to-face teaching or very small amounts of face-to-face teaching, really only our our medics and, and related areas. But does one-to-one education, personalised education, does that have to be in person or can you in fact do that over a a Zoom call or something like that? Well, I think one of the surprises of the past year, at the beginning of all of this, I think our academics would have said that it's fine to put lectures online, we can do lectures online, but the one-on-one tutorials really have to be in person. After um, a term of doing everything online, I think they've revised that view And they find online lectures really very unsatisfactory because they feel they're not getting anything back from the audience, can't engage with the students. Whereas tutorials, they feel if it's just one-on-one, you really can have an interesting 
substantive exchange. Having said that, I don't think we're going to be moving to online tutorials anytime soon. We haven't experienced anything to cause us to question the value of personalized education, but we have learned a lot about how we can enhance that through using online enhancements, if you will. The wide adoption of online learning tools has changed attitudes among both students and academics. But what about this idea that remote learning could allow universities to scale up and take on many more students, some of whom would study entirely online? I asked Professor Louise Richardson, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Oxford, whether we might see global competition for these online-only students and a shakeout in the market. Financial implications of this pandemic are enormous. There will be shakeouts in, in all kinds of ways in the sector because of the financial implications of this for some institutions, precisely because of their dependence on, on international students. One could imagine a global marketplace for education, but I don't see that happening imminently. I mean, at some level, at the postgraduate level, there already is a global marketplace. You know, for university leaders, it's a global marketplace. For the very top graduate students, it is a global marketplace. We are routinely competing with uh, universities around the globe for the, the same top graduates and the same top researchers, lecturers, professors, and so on. At the undergraduate level, yes, indeed, there will be a shakeout, but I wouldn't want it necessarily to shake out to the extent that online are the weaker courses, because I don't think that's true. When you look at the caliber of some of the courses in Udacity or Khan Academy, they are extraordinary. But I would see them as a supplement to rather than a substitute for the kind of education you receive in a university like Oxford. Many universities in the English-speaking parts of the world in particular rely to a large extent on international students effectively to cross-subsidise domestic students, but they do have a very large proportion of their students that are international students. And if they're not going to get so many of them in the future, that does affect their business model. To what extent is Oxford affected by that change? Um, I don't think that in particular uh, concerns us at all, actually. I would fully anticipate that we will continue to attract international students. In fact, just looking at the applications for next year, I think our applications are up significantly. But I I also think that um, pandemic has demonstrated the power of universities, the importance of research universities, not least in our work on developing a vaccine and, and the recovery trials, which have demonstrated the the efficacy of of dexamethasone and things like that. So we don't look to international students as a cash cow at all. In fact, we have relatively small numbers of undergraduate international students just because the English educational system is is difficult to adapt to other countries. Probably about 20% of our undergraduates are international. That changes dramatically at the graduate level where about 60, over 60% are, are international. And I think they will continue to want to come because if you want to work in a lab with the people developing vaccines or quantum computing, or there is no substitute for being here in person. We asked some international students studying in Britain to tell us about their experiences in these unusual times. Hi, my name is Natalia. I moved to the UK two years ago. Yeah, I normally wake up, uh, I see my desk and I'm like, oh, I'm actually going to the University of Leeds, but I'm not really physically going anywhere. Like, I'm in Estonia and this is my desk. Um, 
but oh can you hear my nephew crying actually this is a huge advantage of online learning because yeah i'm with my family my name is simran i am currently an international student at cardiff university where i am doing my masters in architecture so i think the greatest impact that covid has had on my studies personally is taking taking the fluidity and dynamism out of what is supposed to be a very um collaborative course. So we we still have our weekly tutorials, but I just feel like there's a real disconnect. I'm Samaya. At the moment, I have come to Oman to visit my family. I came in November and I'm going to come back to the UK hopefully end of this month. So now, if through this uh blended teaching forum or through this online platform, it's a good medium for them to have access to education. throughout the world especially for the ones who are in the developing countries and i definitely believe that this technology is going to be the change of the future education but although oxford's business model may not rely on income from international students globally it's a different story here's hamish birrell again universities have really come to rely on international students the total number worldwide has has more than doubled over the past two decades and they tend to pay a lot more for their experience so if you look at calgary one of the top universities in canada an international student will pay about 50,000 canadian dollars a year whereas a local one will pay less than 3,000 so the picture kind of varies depending on the covid rules um so in britain where the government's kind of had a pretty dodgy covid response restrictions on foreign travel have been more limited and so international students have have continued to come and numbers have held up pretty well in australia where they've actually managed to control the virus pretty well one of the ways in which they've done this is with strict border controls and because of that students haven't really been able to get into the country and numbers have collapsed and then you have america which is kind of halfway in between numbers have fallen they were falling beforehand and that's proven pretty painful to a lot of universities there which countries universities are most dependent on international students then so it's the anglosphere countries which have historically managed to attract for most international students if you went back kind of 10 years ago for as a kind of proportion of the total number of students for the biggest the big two would have been the UK and the United States and that's because they've traditionally been the kind of most open open to international students but then over the past decade there's been a big growth in the number heading to Canada and Australia too and Australia in particular has done really well out of the growth in the number of Chinese students um, and that's partly just due to just due to location because it's it's not so far for Chinese students to travel So I think those four countries will probably be the most vulnerable to any downturn in the number of international students. Wider adoption of online learning could also challenge another assumption about higher education that having a big lump of it at the beginning of your career is the right model. So what does Hamish Birrell think? It's a hard one to answer and part of the reason it's hard to answer is because the way in which education systems are structured at the moment pushes so many students down that route. And so so if you're a student in Britain there's such a strong presumption as you leave school that that's going to be what you're going to go on and do the funding system is there to enable you to do it without I mean you have to take out loans but the government provides money up front you don't have to pay it back until you start earning money and so there's such low barriers to entry and so it's very hard to see what people's preferences would be if you, if you didn't kind of have the system pushing them in in that direction I suspect as people's careers become more flexible and, re- and people have to retrain more often there is going to be an increase in demand for new forms of education as they are older but I think it will take a while for 
kind of the incentives that governments provide to catch up with that. So it's possible, but it's hard to judge. Professor Louise Richardson at the University of Oxford thinks we're already moving to a lifelong learning model. In many cases, it's being driven by companies who want their workforces to develop, not just you know, skilled labour, but at more senior levels as well. So you see the growth in executive education or bespoke executive education programmes by companies. Uh, you even see companies developing their own in-house universities, as it were. So I think we're gradually moving towards that model, but the disruption in the economy and the move towards more technology, I think, is leading many people to feel that they don't have the skills they need to be as successful as they'd like. So they are turning to other means of, of education. But again, an institution like ours, we have a Department of Education educating 22,000 people uh, separate from the students at Oxford, but the University of Oxford runs a continuing education program. So I think we are moving in that direction. The, the infrastructure is, is there fundamentally, and I think this will accelerate. Another factor that will shape the delivery of education in the years to come will be the development of new and better tools to improve the experience of online learning. Here's Daphne Kohler again. So I think that's where it calls for the development of a, of a new set of teaching tools and teaching methodologies that allow us to teach effectively online as well as create what are called, I think, high flex courses, hybrid flex is the term I've heard, where you have some students who are in the classroom and others who are outside of the classroom, but you still get meaningful interaction and engagement. So it's not just as it was when I taught at Stanford on what's called the Stanford Center for Professional Development, where there's this recording of a classroom lecture that's shipped out to the people who weren't able to be in the classroom. That's really a very unengaging experience for the students who are outside the class. So what other sorts of innovations do you think are going to be needed to make online education more engaging and effective in the future? For a lot of people, learning is very much a social activity. And the only way this works for them is by having other people that they can learn with, that they can discuss with. And that creates both the ability to intellectually engage, but also emotionally engage because you have a companion with you on the journey. So that's a place where I think we need to build learning systems that have much more of a social component to them, where there is meaningful interaction with an instructor to whom you feel committed to, to complete the course, as well as to fellow students who you can have a dialogue with. And in the same way that we don't currently have computers who are our companions in other areas, I don't think that you can have a computer that is going to substitute for that social aspect of learning. And so how do we build a digital platform that creates student-to-student -student and student-to-instructor connections? I think that is a critical part of what it takes to really transform the educational system into a digital world. It's clear that the demands placed on higher education and the way it's delivered are undergoing rapid change. So where will things end up? I asked our guests to predict what education will look like 10 years from now, starting with Daphne Kohler. I think in a decade's time, education will be something that you do throughout your lifetime, not just in the first phase of your adult life. I think the vast majority of it, certainly in the adult phase, but even earlier, uh, we'll start to see more and more of that happening through online media, but in a way that also involves learning with other people as opposed to just on your own. The Economist's Hamish Birrell. 
where I think the change will be will be in postgraduate study, mature students, those for whom the current model of kind of travelling to study works a lot less well. And I think because of the experimentation you've seen during the past year, past two years, the education on offer to them will be much better and, and kind of much more suited to their needs. So I think that's where you will see the change. And finally, Professor Louise Richardson at the University of Oxford. I hope there will be a far greater diversification and I expect there will be a far greater diversification of access to elite institutions. Elite institutions really are interested in identifying talent. So I think the students will look much less homogeneous than they do today. And I think there will be far more technology in the delivery of, of education five or 10 years from now. And I think there will be a far greater cognizance of and planning for lifelong education. Thank you to Professor Louise Richardson, Hamish Birrell and Daphne Kohler and to the international students who spoke to us. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can find more of our future gazing analysis in our annual The World in 2021, which is on newsstands now and is available to subscribers at economist.com slash worldin. If you're not already a subscriber, you're missing out. So go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.